Welcome to Addressing Alaskans, where we feature community conversations around South Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel throughout our community and listen to local groups discuss what matters to them. Today on Addressing Alaskans, Athletes and Eating Disorders. Good afternoon, I'm Ammon Swenson. This episode features a panel discussion moderated by two-time Olympian and professional counselor Holly Brooks with medical experts and athletes discussing the issue of eating disorders in sports and how to combat the issue. This program was recorded on February 23rd at the Beartooth Theater after the world premiere of the documentary Winning at All Costs. The film and event were presented by the Alaska Eating Disorder Alliance. Holly Brooks speaks next. I am really excited to have this panel. Uh, we have some pre-arranged questions, and then we are going to open it up to the audience. So as I said in the film, you know, these issues really, really do thrive in secrecy. Um, and so I'm just overjoyed that, that we're here talking about it today. So we are going to start with Dr. Yolanda Evans. <laughs> you saw her in the film. Yeah. And you know, Dr. Evans, you are an adolescent um, physician, as, you know, working with you know, athletes and, and kids um, in going through puberty often. Um, but my question for you is that there's often very little incentive for change as long as an athlete is still performing in their sport. When should parents, coaches, and teammates be concerned? And what physical symptoms should we all be looking out for? And I'll tell you one thing that I'm thinking. Um, for example, there's something that's known as footlocker. Um, the footlocker phenomenon. And if you're not familiar with footlocker, it is the most elite cross-country running meet in, in the country. And what we tend to see is that the female or female-identifying athletes winning footlocker go poof, and they're nowhere to be seen afterwards. They are too injured to have a college career. They're too injured to have a professional career. So... I am really curious for you to talk about that, but also to talk about this intersection of puberty and eating disorders and relative energy deficiency in sports. So I know that was a lot, but I know you can handle it. Let's see. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, there, there's a lot there. Thanks, Holly. Um, but I think, so as Holly said, I'm an adolescent medicine specialist. I'm in Seattle and a pediatrician that did three extra years of training just to work with teenagers. Um, and I think puberty is like amazing and scary at the same time um, because your energy needs just goes through the roof. So you think about someone like me or any adult in the audience and our energy needs are pretty stable, um, but as a teen, you're actually growing, your bones are changing, as was stated in the film, your brain is changing, you're physically morphing into the adult body that you're gonna have. And so we often see that our athletes um, you know, are needing double the calories of their parents, for example, just to maintain. Um, and so what happens often is as an athlete, you're using so much additional energy um, through practice or extra workouts or things or trying to push and inc improve your times. Um, and often that goes along with taking in less food. 
Um, and so you just end up with this like imbalance and that's what that red S is or reds is where we start to see the physical changes, your bone mineral density can decrease, it can become more brittle. Your brain doesn't work so well. We know that you have changes in your um, gray and white matter when you're malnourished. Your heart starts to try to conserve energy and beat slower. Your gut slows down and so people have constipation. Your energy level is like just non-existent because estrogen, testosterone goes down. Um, so we see all of those things happen and we also see people get set up for injury because your body already is deficient in energy and fuel and you're pushing and pushing and pushing. And so we see overuse injuries, we see stress fractures, and we see people just try to push through because you know we're all really tough on ourselves and we wanna do great. Um, and so even if we're hurt, we say, no, I've got this, I can do it. And then we end up hurting ourselves even more and then we're out. Um, so th all of those things can I see all the time in our clinicals, um, in our clinics with um, physicians and athletic trainers, um, where we have these really amazing athletes who are just pushing themselves to the limit. Um, and it's all really because that energy imbalance um, is present. And, and the interesting thing is that like we're, we see this regardless of your gender. It used to be that we, like the female athlete triad, we would call it, and we just limited this to people who were female. Um, but I see it in my male athletes, my gender diverse athletes, I see it in everyone. Um, the, the bone mineral density issues, the heart rate issues, all of those things. And I think for people who um, don't necessarily fit into the, the stereotype that we think of when we think about an eating disorder, even as physicians, we miss it. Um, because we aren't necessarily asking people, like, what have you done to try to change your body? Um, or have you tried to change your body? Um, and so we don't pick up um, the issues until it's too late. And that, that's an amazing question to start off with. What are you doing to, to change your body, right? Yeah, definitely. I don't ask people, like, if they've, have you ever stopped eating or taken a lot? I usually ask, like, okay, have you tried anything to change your body shape or size? And if it's a yes, like, what was that? Um, to really try to get a sense of what's going on. Yeah. I often say that eating disorders don't discriminate, and I, I think that many of us have probably heard, I didn't think I was sick enough. I wasn't, I'm not skinny enough to have an eating disorder, and that, that is just not true. You know, we're, we're learning more and more about, we can go down rabbit holes, but atypical anorexia and, you know, what, what not. So, um, thank you. The other thing I think about is, you know, biological males, when they hit puberty, testosterone takes their body and performance and they go like this, trajectory, right? So biological females, you know, we, we hit puberty, which is a superpower. No one talks about that. But often we experience what can be this performance plateau and no one talks about it. No one talks about the importance of having your period, right? And so this could be its own talk in and of itself. Yeah, I think, I think for athletes, too, I hear them say, like, I lost my period, I'm doing it right, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's your body giving you a warning sign. It's like flashing, flashing lights, like, stop, we need to change, um, because that menstrual period is really a, a proxy for estrogen and other hormones that you need, and we need the body fat there um, as people who are going through female puberty um, just to keep developing. Thank you, Dr. Evans. So moving on to Nina Kempel. So Nina, 
um, is a four-time Olympian and most recently served, yeah. <laughs> Nina most recently served on the US Olympic and Paralympic uh, board. So basically working in sport leadership. So Nina, I'm wondering from your perspective, what role might sport governance have in protecting athletes with regards to fueling and eating disorders? And you know, one thing that I'm thinking about and a comparison that is, has been drawn um, is the concussion epidemic. And in the past, people would get hit in the head and coaches and parents and everyone would say, get back out there. What we have learned is that is absolutely wrong, right? We have established safety protocols and guidelines and baselines for concussions and head injuries. And so a lot of people are talking about fueling and underfueling in, in a similar way, but we're, we just, we aren't there yet. So again, you know, Nina, what is the potential role of sport leadership and governance in addressing this issue? Well, thanks, Holly, and thank you for narrating that wonderful film that we all shared. Um, you know, when I was competing uh, some time ago, uh, it was, uh, you know, Eating disorders were very, very, just as relevant as then as they are today. Uh, but we never talked about it. We didn't break the silence. And I had a roommate who for uh, 180 days of the year was my best friend, um, absolute uh, uh, partner in crime to everything that we did on a competitive front together. Um, and she had an eating disorder. And despite how close we were, we never talked about it. Um, and I regret that to this day, um, and I do think that there is reason that sport governance needs to play a role. Um, when I sat on the U.S. Olympic Committee Board of Directors, I was asked as the athlete lead to set up the, sport, uh, the U.S. Olympic Committee uh, Center for Safe Sport. It was initially set up to protect athletes from sexual misconduct, sexual abuse um, during the gymnastics um, uh, pandemic of, of uh, abuse in that organization, but it has transpired to be so much more. It is now a place where people can go and report um, when a coach is encouraging uh, eating disorders amongst their athletes, when uh, you may fear that there's something wrong with the dynamic within a team that's creating a unhealthy environment around eating and eating topics. Um, and so we really have um, set up a really come a long ways in 20 years around how sports governance has developed and supported uh, those who are experiencing eating disorders because there is a lot of elite athletes and a lot of people that are out here in the crowd tonight that have uh, really battled and struggled. But I will say governance follows action. And I applaud Akita and the work that they're doing. I applaud all of the athletes that are willing to step up and talk about it. I applaud the coaches who are bringing up the topics around that are hard to talk about um, because governance will follow those that need a path. And the Olympic Committee and all of the sports uh, that are governing um, many of our, our elite programs are driven by the voice of the athletes, that are driven by the voice of the coaches and driven by the voice of organizations like uh, Akita. Um, so I encourage you to continue to have a voice. Um, the governance will follow. And I was encouraged uh, when I went back um, and read today that almost all sports now in their safe sport policy, which they're required to have if they are an Olympic sport, 
uh, have a topic that addresses eating disorders and what is allowed and what is not allowed and how coaches are able to uh, use the topic to support but not to harm athletes in their path forward. So I hope that we continue to move forward in a positive direction over the next 20 years, but the voice of all of you sitting in the audience tonight will largely shape that. And I just want to say thank you to Nina for her role in that. You know, she talked about how safe sport is definitely in its infancy, and when things are new, they're often imperfect and clunky, and, you know, I think we're experiencing that. But it is absolutely important that people have a place where they can report anonymously, because everyone is really, really terrified of retaliation, right? And, and that power imbalance, we'll, we're going to circle back to that. Um, but, but thank you, Nina. So I am going to turn it over to Blaze. So Blaze Boyer um, is here, and, and Blaze is a top high school cross-country runner, also the captain of the South Anchorage High School running team. And I just want to pose the question to Blaze. Um, you know, to what extent do you hear talk about the need to lose weight to be more competitive? Um, but more specifically, how can peers, athlete to athlete, change the culture and or create a healthy culture amongst a team, right? Because we have the coach in the leadership position, but we also have a very strong peer influence. So, Blaze. This is what we're talking about. Eating disorders are a super, super serious thing, especially in athletes who are around my age, or in like middle school, high school, getting into college, um, especially in that uh, time of puberty, that's when it's really serious. Um, and the good news is that today, the knowledge about eating disorders is a lot more open than it was 10 years ago. Uh, and it's something that we can all work on. Um, I, I know at, at my team at South, um, it's not something that I hear a lot. I don't hear people talking about that, about eating disorders. Um, I know I have a coach who's really smart and researched and he knows that eating disorders aren't something that really will benefit anyone. I mean, trying to get your weight down, that's something that is really a short-term fix that doesn't really go anywhere. Um, I do hear uh, stories though of other places where I've heard of eating disorders and coaches who might encourage that kind of thing. Um, and I always hear negative things from that. That's always something that people regret being a part of, something that uh, it hurts people. But I do think that people in general are learning more about the psychology behind eating disorders and how they work. Um, and it's something that, in general, is something we can all work towards. Um, and I think that if you want to help people who might be struggling with this, I think just being willing to talk to them is really helpful because it's something that's so stigmatized that if, if we're able to turn it into something that anyone can talk about, if it's like telling your coach you have shin splints, if it's just it's something that you work through together, then it's something that is going to be able to be helped a lot easier. Um, and shame is really, like, that's, that's the big thing that makes eating disorders 
so difficult to get through because you don't want to talk about it. It's hard to talk about. Um, but if we can get through that, then we can get places. Um, and I think also just being smart, being researched, when, when someone, when you decide that you want to change up how you're training or your nutrition or a friend of yours decides that they want to do something like that, working through it with them, looking into the research behind that is really helpful because just looking online can really show what matters there. I like your comment just about, about shame. And, you know, in the film, and I've already mentioned this, I think, you know, kind of pulling back this curtain on secrecy is really important. And just looking at the statistics, um, you know, studies say that upwards of one in three uh, female NCAA athletes meet the criteria for a clinical, clinically diagnosable eating disorder. We also know that 64% of athletes have disordered thoughts or behaviors, right? This is, this is really prevalent. And athletes experience eating disorders at a rate two to three times that of their non-athletic counterparts. And so, you know, I like how you say that you, we should be able to go and talk to a coach if we have shin splints, and we should be able to go talk to a coach you know, if we're having an issue around, around feeling. I think that that's, that's fantastic. And I have a lot of hope for this younger generation, you know, in terms of just being comfortable talking, talking about these mental health issues. One thing I just wanna bring up really quickly when you're talking about injuries is if we want to talk about this in um, maybe a less stigmatized way, I know one of my colleagues talks about red S as being a metabolic injury, right? So if, you, if it helps to think of it that way, let's think of it that way. So I wanna turn it over next to Brooke. And Brooke um, is a sports dietitian. And on her website, she talks about, I do not work with athletes looking to lose weight or achieve a certain body aesthetic. I focus collaboratively with the athlete to become a stronger, healthier athlete. So I just wanted to ask, um, Brooke, what are the trends that you are seeing in your practice and how can athletes avoid these pitfalls? So there are so many trends out there with nutrition. I think we can all agree on that. You look on the internet and there's something new every day. Um, but with athletes, there is a very common trend that I see and that's the over-exercising and under-eating. Um, to establish a lower body weight to perform better. And what happens nutritionally is I see this fixation on clean eating or eating healthy, only eating good foods, and really you know, having a black and white mindset when it comes to what we're fueling our bodies with. And what happens is the athlete is not consuming enough energy, and this leads to a number of different health issues. Um, nutritionally, I see a lot of GI issues. So somebody might come to my office and say, oh, I'm having a lot of constipation, or I'm having new food sensitivities to gluten or dairy, and then they cut these foods out, and that further leads down the rabbit hole of underfueling, right, because they're cutting out different food groups. Um, the other thing that I see is the good food versus bad food mindset, and this leads to, again, that black and white thinking around nutrition of, oh, if I eat a good food, I'm a good athlete, or I'm a good person. If I eat a bad food, I'm not a good person, and that leads to a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, 
same. Um, so a lot of the work that I do is centered around education on how all foods serve a purpose in our diet. And there are no good foods and bad foods. All foods truly do serve a purpose. Um, and that is a, a big message that I have for everybody tonight. And then, you know, another big trend that I see is the low carb, the low carb trend right now that's huge, um, which is extremely det detrimental to the athletic population because carbohydrates are the body's primary energy source. So if we're not giving our body that primary energy source, it's not able to perform optimally. Our brain isn't functioning optimally. We're tired, we can't sleep. Um, we have very low energy throughout the day. Lots of different things happen. It's this massive cascade that happens. Um, so eat your carbs. We love carbs, um, <laughs> and that's that's those are the big messages that I'm that I'm or the big trends that I'm seeing right now with with athletes. So Brooke is very active on social media, and the other day she actually had a reel about broccoli versus gummy bears. Can you can you tell us about broccoli versus gummy bears? Yes, so the reel was essentially saying, uh, well, I was debunking a post that I saw on Instagram. And so the, the post was saying 1,000 calories from broccoli is always better than 1,000 calories from gummy bears. And it's this kind of black and white thinking that is so damaging to our society. Um, and so when I was talking about it in like the athletic population, Broccoli, 1,000 calories from broccoli is not always going to be the better option, right? Like you wouldn't go and eat broccoli before a race. You might have some very, very negative um, <laughs> gastrointestinal problems. But gummy bears, those are like your super fuel. That's like your superpower. Um, so, you know, just breaking down those barriers and debunking these things on social media is so important. And broccoli and gummy bears both have a place in your diet. <laughs> I, I love that. And in the film, we talked briefly about orthorexia and this almost obsession with clean eating, this moralization of food, this I am better because I'm eating quinoa instead of pizza. <laughs> and it, it's just not true. <laughs> and I'm not here to say that it doesn't matter what you eat. Of course, of course it does. But it is so important to eat a diverse range of foods. Um, and I know for myself, I was on the road for five months a year, um, every year, competing on the World Cup, and I often didn't have a lot of control over, over what I was eating. And I know that other teammates who were vegans or vegetarians, they weren't able to get the energy that they needed to compete in their sport. And so, like I said in the film, I'm not against those choices for environmental reasons or anything like that. And it is really difficult without a lot of resources and a lot of help to meet your nutritional needs. Yes, absolutely. And if I could add just one more thing. Um, I often see that people are praised for the way that they eat, um, and this kind of goes along with the, the orthorexia tendencies too, where somebody might change their food, their food habits and they're praised for it, but we don't know that we're praising an eating disorder. So just be very you know, cautious of the way that we talk about food and bodies. Thank you. So passing the mic, Mina already has it. <laughs> so Mina, you are not in the film, but you have a very important story to share and a message. So I'm going to turn it over to you. Yes, um, hello everyone. So. <laughs> 
My name is Mina Hancock. I use they, them pronouns. And in high school, I was just another athlete, very committed athlete. Um, I went to service high school and competed in cross-country running and cross-country skiing. Um, but that's not where my main part of my story comes from. Um, I went off to college at UC Santa Cruz, and when I came home for winter break, I knew something was wrong but couldn't quite put my finger on it until a couple days later I actually was admitted into the hospital. And this is where the importance of resources and acknowledging the... Um, <laughs> the danger of this mental illness is so, so important because until everyone in my family and my community was forced to come to the knowledge that I was struggling with an eating disorder, no one knew what was happening. It was hidden. I hid it very well. I, of course, as mentioned before, hides in shame, hides in excuses. Um, but with the awareness of the community and everyone around us, we can make it so that people aren't learning for the first time really what constitutes an eating disorder when they are in severe medical condition from one. And so I hope that with the resources from Akita and from the knowledge that you're gaining from this panel tonight, that you can learn more. And so as a community, we can help support and recognize those who are struggling um, to get the help that they need, which can be life-saving and definitely has made my life better in every way possible. I would not be where I am today if it wasn't for the support that I had, so. So, Mina, you and I have done some advocacy work together and you've just been exquisite at, at that. Um, Mina testified in front of the school board um, as one thing. But what would you like to see take place? What kind of awareness or what could we do um, with the middle school and high school populations? Yeah, I mean, I think as mentioned by pretty much everyone on this panel is during puberty is such a vulnerable time for eating disorders and especially within the athletics community. So I think um, because we're mainly talking about athletics here, starting each season with the conversation so that as Blaze said, just as if you were going to talk to your coach about a shin splint, you can go talk to them about, hey, like I've really noticed that I look in the mirror and I'm not happy with what I'm seeing, or my friend is doing this and they got faster, so I'm thinking of potentially trying that. And being able to talk to people that are educated in and of themselves and also to, again, have that awareness. I would also like to see every teacher, nurse, um, counselor, anyone who is a support system within our schools um, to have knowledge and awareness around eating disorders so that we can see these and see what's happening because, you know, sometimes kids aren't at home very often, but they're still going to school. And so these are the times where we can catch them early and get them to the resources that they need. Um, definitely one thing that would be amazing if it happened in every school would be a student-led discussion on bodies and body image and um, just 
going through high school, like high school's a hard time, guys. Like, um, and you know, having that open conversation because um, when I went through treatment, I think that our group therapy was one of the most helpful things because every time someone said something, I was like, oh my gosh, I thought the same thing or did the same thing or experienced the same thing. And yes, they call them in all different shapes, sizes, and flavors, but we all kind of have had the same roots to what was happening. And so I think opening the conversation and getting people to talk about these things that everyone is experiencing but is not talking about is so unbelievably beneficial. And so that would be, of course, my like ultimate dream. <laughs> You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on Alaska Public Media. Today's episode features a panel discussion presented by the Alaska Eating Disorder Alliance and moderated by two-time Olympian and professional counselor Holly Brooks discussing eating disorders in athletes and how to combat the issue. So one thing that I just want to draw attention to when I think about your story is you know maybe the, the seeds were planted with some of the thoughts and behaviors but it wasn't until you went to college that the eating disorder really thrived. And if I think about risk factors, I often think about transition as being a risk factor. Moving out of your house for the first time, you know, joining a new team, having a new training plan, you know, athletes having a high school coach and a club coach, and no one is really paying attention to how many hours a day they're practicing or working out. Um, a family that becomes separated, right? Or, or there's, you know, a loss. So these are all transitions which I think of as big risk factors for, you know, the eating disorder to kind of take place and and thrive and and run with it. So I just kind of wanted to point that out because you've told me before, you know, you go to college and no one there knows you. No one knows what you used to act like, right? Yeah, I mean, definitely going to college. Um, looking back, I during my college selection, I actually was specifically like, I don't want to go anywhere where I know anyone. Um, and I definitely think those were definitely some early creeping thoughts coming in. Um, but when I went to college, yeah, I went to California, which is very different from Alaska, um, and was surrounded by people I had no idea who they were. And so I kind of, I think that I, the eating disorder was the only thing that I could find familiarity in, and the only thing that was there every day for me and was very consistent. Um, and I think that, I mean, it, it definitely amplified my eating disorder, that transition, but I think that being aware of those things of like, what brings that consistency and knowing that an eating disorder serves a purpose. Um, we don't get eating disorders just cause. Um, they have very crucial roles in what we're trying to achieve. And for me, that was just something that was the same as back home. The other thing that just popped into my head that you told me about your story is, I went to California and it was sunny every day. There are no built-in rest days. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah. In Alaska, it's raining, it's snowing, and every single day it was sunny. And I mean, there was definitely some other things going on, but I was like, I gotta, I gotta get out there every day because it's sunny and it's not always sunny. And yeah, that was definitely something that um, helped move my eating disorder forward in a, not a good way. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your story and just for the advocacy. So turning it over to Susan. Susan, your story is incredibly important and I am eternally grateful for your bravery in sharing it publicly. I know that that is not easy. And it seems like every day we're learning more and more about the prevalence of abuse in sport um, through institutions and at the hands of coaches. It seems like it's there. there's a new case in the news all of the time. So Susan, can you talk about the influence of a coach and the power and balance at play? You know, why is this relationship primed for abuse? Yeah, that's a great um, question. So uh, I'm going to take it back a little bit. Yeah. So I'm a 14-year-old girl, okay? and uh, say, actually, I'm an 18-year-old girl. I've just transitioned to college, and uh, my coach is a multiple uh, conference champion. I mean, many awards. He is a 50-year-old man. Um, I'm just painting a random picture for you. Um, how can I challenge him when he's coaching me, right? So a lot of our athletes have these moments when uh, we're looking at that imbalance um, this is someone that I'm looking up to. This is someone that I'm trying to please. Maybe I'm looking at them as like a second father figure, right? So for me, a lot of my, um, I was trying to make my coach be proud of me because it was hard for me to be proud of myself. And so when I coach a lot of my athletes, and actually a bunch of my girls are sitting in the front row right now. Um, <laughs> thank you girls for coming, it's very sweet. A lot of these girls actually are uh, members of the varsity team that won at state, just saying. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a lot of my coaching uh, comes from when I first kind of fell in love with running. Uh, my high school coach was someone that just brought so much like love and joy to the sport. I was not very fast when I first started running and he just gave me so much love and encouragement. And so when I do coach these guys, um, there's a lot of love, there's a lot of communication, there's a lot of, okay, I don't feel good today, coach, could I do this? Absolutely. Um, a lot of times you hear, like for me when I was in college and some of my teammates from college are actually here as well, um, it was, you couldn't go to coach and ask for a day off because there were no days off if you wanted to be good, right? Uh, you couldn't tell him that you had shin splints. You couldn't go to this person who was leading you because you lived in so much fear. And so that's that imbalance that we see with a lot of coaches and athletes. And so as we move forward, we work really, really hard to make sure that our coaches are educated, our athletes are educated, they have a voice. This generation is really mouthy and I love it. Like mouthy in the best way possible. Like they will tell me like, 
Coach Susie, you're kind of being a little grouchy today. And I'm like, you're right, sorry. Um, and they're laughing because they know. <laughs> but they will tell you, and that's so amazing that they have that voice, that they're just starting to speak up more and more, where for me and some of my teammates then, we couldn't speak up. We were too scared. Um, so as we move forward, we get to see this generation kind of make some waves out there. So I think I answered your question, Holly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I love what you're talking about in that you're creating an environment that isn't based on fear. It's based on comfort, right? And it is maybe more of a collaborative relationship rather than scare tactics. And, you know, I think what makes the coach-athlete relationship so prime for abuse is that power differential that you talked about. It's, I don't want to lose my scholarship. It's, I don't want to lose my start. It's, I really like being the favorite one, right? We're learning more and more about the process of, of grooming athletes as, as well, which is, which is really scary. So Susan, you know, I love how you have entered, re-entered the athletic space as a coach. We need more coaches like you. You know, what kind of, I don't know, do you have any additional advice for the coaches in the audience? Or, you know, maybe you feel like you've already answered that question, but I just, I want to hear a little more of your platform. Yeah, I think I'm really lucky because I get to be in the school. So I see these athletes all day. They come eat lunch with me. They ask me silly questions, which there's no such thing as a silly question, right? They're, there's just so much... Like, I know they love me, and I know that I love them very much as people first. So I don't care about what time they run. I don't care about what place they do or they, they get. But um, all I care about is the person that's standing right in front of me. And if, like, they're mentally okay, um, how can I support you? Uh, I know they come to me often for all kinds of questions, and that's I'm very grateful that they feel that they can come to me. I often say I went from like, when I first started coaching, I was like, the fun sister would show up, maybe we'd go for a fun run, maybe we wouldn't, oops, you know? And then, <laughs> don't tell the head coach, you know? And then, and then at some point I've like turned into the fun aunt, like I'm like, hey, you know, like you get your homework done. And um, I just feel really grateful that there's just like so much, um, communication both ways. So if they come to me and they're like, I just don't feel good today. I'm like, okay, what do you need? What can I do for you? Okay, uh, I'll pull you out of class. Maybe you need to do homework during that hour or don't run that day. Go, go do yoga, do what you wanna do. Um, there's just so much more communication going both ways versus me telling them what to do. Um, so I guess my big advice for uh, coaches is to treat them like they're people first because that's what they are, right? It's great to be an athlete, but I'd rather you be a great person and a great human being and you take care and you make yourself proud before you try to make me proud. So when you're talking about it, you are very much creating this environment where people want to show up there's nothing punitive about it. People, the athletes, they, they want to be there. And when I'm working with a client, I often say, hey, it's not about my goals, where it's, it's about your goals, but I'm gonna tell you, I want you to have a sustainable relationship with your sport. 
I want you to not hate this sport and quit this sport. And I'll tell you, you know, in the, in the film, we saw Ben, and there was something that flashed up, and it said he sustained a non-sport injury. So he was in Las Vegas for something, and a billboard fell down and hit him. And if you remember what the next slide said, it said something about how it was the best thing that ever happened to him. And to me, that is, that is tragic that this non-sport injury happened to him and it forced him out of his sport. Something that he initially at one point loved. And, and that, is, that is so sad. And so Susan, when I'm hearing you talk, I'm hearing you talk about seeing the person first, talking, yes, of course, about training, but seeing the person first. And from my standpoint, when I'm working with clients, we talk a lot about process goals versus outcome goals. So outcome goals are the PR, the win, the stats, the streak, the podiums, the teams. And there are certain coaches who coach just to that. You are your result. And the level of anxiety that I am seeing as a therapist with athletes is stifling, right? And so the, the, the like situation that you are creating, you're creating this like process-driven process environment where you care about the person. You're de-emphasizing the win, but through emphasizing the person, that's actually how you are getting the win. Right? And we're seeing athletes, the goats of the world, you know, Michael Phelps, Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka, they're all coming out and they're talking about mental health issues. And, you know, there's so much pressure on them to just win. And, you know, they're, they're not machines. And, you know, they, of course, are the goats of the world, but I think our middle school athletes, our high school athletes, you know, we need to meet them where they're at. We just need to create an environment where they want to be, where they want to, you know, perform and, you know, make friends, right? And create uh, an environment that's, that's fun and sustainable. And they can also get really good, right? So I, I love that. I guess I just want to ask the panel, what are we missing? What do you have in your mind, right, that you would love to share with, with this audience? Any, anything before we turn it over to questions from this group? I mean, I guess I'll say, Holly, I, I think that a lot of the comments tonight were directed uh, at our next generation of athletes that are coming up and will serve us um, and Alaska and our country so well. But there's a lot of athletes in this room uh, that are in our later uh, parts of our career, athletic career. Um, and I commend all of you for um, for being here tonight too and learning more uh, about how we can educate because education on this topic is probably the most important uh, thing we can do uh, across all boards. But I also think I hear a theme from everybody sitting here tonight that um, you know, eating disorders uh, highly impact athletes probably more so than any other uh, group, but they are not, it's not discriminatory. But um, remember that we all will have run our best PRs. We will all have um, our moments of um, best performances. But uh, in the long run, it's our relationship with athletics that makes us healthy emotionally, physically, and spiritually, uh, and beyond that. So um, I just remind us that the, that healthy relationship is what's most important, and I think what you're hearing from everybody on the panel tonight. 
Thank you, Nina. And we wanted to give you, the, the audience, a chance to ask your question um, to, to this panel. So we have a very like incredibly um, diverse like group of experiences here. We have a lot of expertise. Um, and this is, this is your chance. Let's, let's have a conversation. Hi, Holly. Thank you so much for this movie. My name is Sonia. I'm a pediatric physical therapist. So I'm gonna challenge you guys. I really appreciate all your knowledge and everything. You guys have touched on this a bit. Yolanda, I think I probably worked with you before at Providence. Um, anyhow, I am gonna challenge you. At what age do you guys really reach to and consider discussing self-image and the importance of really identifying that you have a strong self-image. Can I take on that one? So I, I'm, I'm repeating or paraphrasing the questions just so everyone hears, and also because we are recording um, for a radio show later. And so as I understand, the question is, at what age should we start talking about self-image, body image, puberty? Absolutely. I, I work a lot in early childhood and on up in middle school and stuff. So I'm just curious if you guys could speak a little bit about earlier than middle school and, and talking about body image and self-image and creating that positive relationship. And if we're maybe missing a little bit by starting in middle school. Thank you, guys. That's a great question. Um, and I would say when you start talking to your child, um, so as in the movie, we, so as, a, as somebody who works with kids who have an eating disorder, I've taken care of patients as young as seven um, who met the diagnostic criteria for anorexia nervosa. Um, and so it's not common to see it in somebody that young, but it happens. Um, and so I think as, as people who are in the lives of children, um, normalizing the beauty that we all are in our different shapes and sizes, not commenting on our body parts per se. Um, so I don't tell my kids, I have kids too, I don't tell them, oh my gosh, your waist is so beautiful or you're, you look beautiful, like your body looks great. I'm like, wow, you really tried so hard to pick out an outfit that you felt confident in. You know, the way we talk to our kids, we can, we can really de-emphasize that value of the body and more emphasize the value of the characteristics we want them to continue to have moving forward. And I think also as people who are with kids, um, taking away that negative body talk. Let's not talk about things like, oh my gosh, if I eat that, it's gonna go straight to whatever part you don't like. Um, and just really uh, more come together and enjoy the meal and enjoy the camaraderie that goes along with have, sharing you know, the dinner table with people. So I think um, I, see, I see as you know, in the early school age curricula that have excuse me, emphasis on like, characteristics instead of body parts. Hope I answered that. I love that and just one thing that I would add is there are these things called Velcro comments. And so everyone knows what Velcro is, it's sticky, right? And I hear all the time from people, whether they're adolescents, I mean, I mostly work with adolescents, but 
This one person said one thing to me, and I never forgot it. And sometimes it's something that's said to a very, very young child. And so I love what Dr. Evans is saying. It's like, let's let from the first time that kids can understand what you're talking about, don't necessarily praise their body for the aesthetics of it. Talk to them about the function, right, of their body and their characteristics. And that starts from day one, maybe before they can even understand what, what, we're, what we're saying. So I love that. Anyone else want to add to that? I'll add a little bit to that, too. So research has shown that children as young as five are aware of how their body compares to other bodies. And that statistic, when I read that, it, it shocked me. Um, because truly, like, what we say to our children matters and how we treat ourselves really matters. Um, so a lot of the work that I do, I work with a lot of adolescents. I also work with a lot of middle-aged women. And a lot of middle-aged women tell me, like, I want to be better for my kids. And that, that right there is, um, it's amazing. So I just wanted to add that on, on top of that conversation, too. Um, I had a question. Susan, first I wanted to ask, when you were in the room with those coaches getting weighed, was there any female coaches in that room? That is a great question. <laughs> there was not. So I've personally never had a female coach. So then as a female high school running coach myself, I feel like I'm always, I'm careful of what I say to the kids, but my male assistant coaches are not. So how does that get taught to the male gender on how to deal with adolescent female athletes or NCAA athletes or things like that? Wow, that's a tough one. The male gender is a difficult gender. Uh, <laughs> anyone want to attack that one? <laughs> Oh, gosh. Well, I think it, like we were talking about, um, it takes a lot of role modeling. Um, I noticed, like, for me, I, so I was teaching PE for a couple years, and I just switched into uh, teaching life skills, so special education. Um, this is kind of a little odd, but um, I've noticed that as a person who's close to a lot of young people, they've seen me interact with the, this group of people, this population, right? And they've seen these good interactions. Um, they have learned that uh, people with disabilities are like anybody else, right? And all they had to do was see one person who they love and care about, uh, who also loves and cares about them, to figure that out, right? So this kind of goes back to men. Um, they might need to see you in action with your athletes and having those positive conversations and um, learning from that experience. And then they also might need to be encouraged to do some really uncomfortable things like talk about a menstrual cycle. It's there, we've been having them forever, right? So we gotta talk about them, even if you're a man. Um, so pushing your, first of all, making sure you have a great coaching staff. I'm really lucky to be a part of an incredible coaching staff um, who communicates often, who's on the same page about many things. So making sure your coaching staff is top-notch is hard, but it's very possible. Um, or finding someone that you can mold, right? Because uh, they just need to see you do that. They need to follow your lead. 
Um, also encouraging your staff to go to uh, conferences where they can learn more. There's so many resources now, and they just have to be kind of pushed to do it. Like, this is your homework. You're gonna look up how to have a conversation with a teenage girl about her menstrual cycle. <laughs> I mean, you just gotta push people a little bit. Um, and so I think that's kind of how I would personally do it. Uh, <laughs> anyone else have any comments? I'll comment on your question because I think it's a really important one. I competed on the international stage for 15 years. and that time, I had 22 different coaches. Not one of them was female. Um, and that is a comment of itself uh, that uh, I think we need to both have a discussion about within uh, what is the norms and expectations of being a coach at an elite level. But I think it also is a responsibility on all of us uh, that do have talents around coaching to um, be part of the solution there and to have more female athletes as role models, as coaches, as uh, willing to be able to have the conversation with, with young women. And, and so I applaud you for stepping up and being a coach. And um, I think we need to encourage more uh, women to become coaches. Uh, and there is a whole life of athletics after uh, the co competition period is over. So it's a way for all of us to get back. I love that. And, you know, I'll just say from a cross-country skiing perspective, I believe it was two years ago, the WSCA um, started, which is the Women's Ski Coaching Association. And so, you know, a lot of research shows that if you are a minority in any environment, it's really hard to speak up, it's really hard to be there, right? And so minorities, whether it's gender, any other, any other identification, um, you know, you need at least 20% to like show up and have a voice. And so to Nina's point, we need more. And to Susan's point, you know, if you are coaching um, people who menstruate, you need to be able to say the word period. Say it with me. Period. Period. Thank you. <laughs> and, you know, it doesn't mean that you have to be the one who is having the full in-depth conversation, but you do need to be able to broach these subjects with comfort. And I will say that Akita has a ton of resources on their website, including links to an organization called With All. And they have a what to say campaign. So there are literally scripts for these kinds of things if, if you are not comfortable, right? Um, and additionally, it's, I think it's really important and imperative for coaches to have great referral sources, right? So maybe the coach starts off the conversation and says, hey, this is out of my wheelhouse, outside of my scope, and I would love to connect you with this professional in, in that area. So great, next question. You have time for one more? Yeah. Um, so I've worked in the education sphere, and one of the like best practices we talk about is using non-evaluative language. So often, like students come to us and they're seeking praise on something because they're like, "Oh, did like did I do well?" or like they want our validation. And so instead, like shifting your language to say something that's like, "Well, like." how do you think you did or whatever is better. But I really struggled with this in the athletic space, like when people are seeking reinforcement or praise from a result, or even in my like adult friend group, if they like didn't do well in a race or they did really well and they want praise, I don't know how to like 
what to ask them about their race or about their event. So as coaches and athletes, like what's the healthiest question for you to hear after your race or what are some ideas? So the question is about linguistics and, you know, potentially athletes across the the age spectrum seeking praise, right? And so what are some suggestions for non-evaluative language? I guess I have the microphone, so. Um, (laughs) um, I mean, I think that asking and focusing on the way you feel is so much more important than the time that you got. Um, Being able to evaluate after a race, like, oh, that first hill was really tough and really taxed me for the rest of the race. Next time, this is what I'll do. Or really killed it on that first hill, was feeling really strong, and then I tried to pass this person when I knew I shouldn't have, and I wiped out. Like, there's so many other things. And, I mean, obviously, within athletics, you're trying to do the best that you can and trying to... Um, get to those certain results. Um, But I think it's definitely about, you know, being like, wow, you looked really strong on that hill. Your form was impeccable. Or I saw you coming into that shoot, that final shoot, and you were smiling. You knew you had that race. Like, things like that of, you know, I saw the effort that you put in um, and really asking how they felt too, because I think just from having an athletic background, being able to evaluate your own races and see what went well and what didn't helps you for your future races. So um, definitely things like that. I like the question of, of how, did, how did you feel about it? Because you know, I talk to people about their performances all the time and you know, we tend to come to assumptions. If someone won a race, we just assume that they had an amazing race. And that actually isn't always the case, right? So someone may have won the race, but maybe they didn't meet some of their process goals or something like that. We, we always come up with assumptions. And so I just, I like this question of like, how'd it go out there, right? Like, how did you feel about it? I know that's general, but. So we are unfortunately out of time. So what I want to do is I just want to thank this panel immensely for their expertise, their participation. And just thank you so, so much for your participation, for coming tonight. This is how we break the silence on athletes and eating disorders. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks to the panelists. Thanks to Beth and Jenny. And thanks to Lansic Media. Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. Today's episode featured a panel discussion moderated by two-time Olympian and professional counselor Holly Brooks with medical experts and athletes discussing the issue of eating disorders in sports and how to combat the issue. You can find this program and links to more information on the Addressing Alaskans page on alaskapublic.org. I'm Ammon Swenson. Thanks for listening. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. 
The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Life Informed, this is Alaska Public Media.